Hey everybody, Joe here from the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. If you enjoy what we do here on the show and you think it's worth your hard-earned money, you can support the show via Patreon. Just a $1 donation gets you access to bonus episodes, our Discord, and regular episodes before everybody else. If you donate at an elevated level, you get even more bonus content. A digital copy of my book, The Hooligans of Kandahar, and a sticker from our Teespring store. Our show will always be ad-free and is totally supporter-driven. We use that money to pay our bills, buy research materials that make this show possible, and support charities like the Kurdish Red Crescent, the Flint Water Fund, and the Halo Trust. Consider joining the Legion of the Old Crow today. And now back to the show. And welcome to yet another duology of the Lines Led by Donkeys podcast. I'm Joe, and with me as always is Liam. Hello, Liam. Why are you making me do a genocide? <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I, I remember, like, when you asked me to, like, guest host or whatever it is I'm doing until Nick comes back, like fucking being so excited and telling my girlfriend like i went from like listening to my favorite podcast to guessing on my favorite podcast to being a host of my favorite podcast and now now i'm I'm really in it for the long haul because here i fucking am on a genocide duology in in my defense i warned you about this beforehand it's yeah, I'm not <laughs> saying you didn't. I know what I got. I know what I'm getting into. I'm just, you know, just had a a, a relaxing monday at the office and here i go to learn about genocide that's right tuesday i will i will start this off on a good note uh, i guess um so i'm not sure when this episode will be coming out um but not that long ago obviously liam and i let for for us it's last week uh recorded a duology about the the pancho via expedition and I asked if any Mexican listeners had any opinions regarding Pancho Villa, how he's seen in Mexico today, how he's taught in schools and things like that. And I, I did get a comment uh, from a longtime Mexican listener. Um, and she said, uh, Villa is seen in Mexico as a folk hero, uh, like a Mexican Robin Hood. And he gave a black eye to the gringos and they never captured him. Obviously, I am. This is a direct quote. <laughs> And, and him not being on the victorious side of the war and later being assassinated made sure that his legend spreads as well as meeting that while the, the constitutionalistas, uh, sorry, uh, like Carranza and Obregon are viewed as the men that gave us the PRI, Villa and Zapata are the people's underdogs and ones that will, would have given us a fair country. So in a way, defeat made sure that he would always be a hero in the, imag- in the popular imagination here. And she also adds on to anybody that considers Via a hero. I do need to point out that he did pogroms against Chinese Mexicans. Uh, so that's a dick move, man. Yeah. Uh, so thanks for that. Um, if you happen to be from a, a place that we talk about, uh, feel free to slide into our DMs, emails, or in that case, our Discord, and tell us uh, like how things are seen on your side. Unless you're American, I don't want to hear from you. Uh, because the well, only people I ever hear from are fucking neo Confederates. <laughs> um, it lasted four years. Yeah, I I had a relationship that lasted that long. Cowboy it, Bebop it, is a larger part of our cultural uh, zeitgeist than the Confederacy is. Um, yeah, I've I've taken shits longer than the Confederacy lasted. <laughs> um, now, obviously, I, I say Americans. I, I don't mean natives. Uh, you guys are feel free. <laughs> um, <laughs> now. As uh, as Liam has already pointed out, and you know you've read the title uh, before you started listening to this podcast, I assume we are talking about the Namibian genocide. Um, but I do need to clear some things up before we start. Uh, I need to address the title that I'm using: uh, the Namibian genocide, rather than the more commonly known Herero and Namaqua genocide. Now, these titles are used interchangeably in the field of genocide studies, and are both technically accurate. I choose the shorter one because I have to title these in SoundCloud and uh, SoundCloud does not like long titles. Uh, Also, like we've talked about before regarding the Holocaust and the Armenian genocide and as well as the Cambodian genocide, many more people than just the Herero and Namaqua people were killed in this genocide. So I feel like just calling it the Herero and Namaqua genocide is incomplete. Um, Sure. Yeah. 
another note, the sources I'm using for this are books, Exterminate All the Brutes, Let Us Die Fighting, and The African Kaiser, unless I note otherwise. Uh, there, I think I took care of all the professional stuff in case my professors are listening. <laughs> hey, guys. <laughs> Hello. Please ignore all the swears. Oh, man, I... <laughs> or opening Wikipedia to the uh, part of a series on genocide. Issues. List by death toll. Genocidal rape. War and genocide. That's right. Effects on, on, effects on youth. Genocide of indigenous peoples. Late Ottoman genocides. World War II. The Cold War. Genocides in post-colonial Africa. Ethno-religious genocides <laughs> in contemporary area. God damn, dude. Anyway, the, you since you just saw our footprint of your future on the show. Um, no, uh, and uh, you know, there's uh, eventually one day we'll we'll talk about um, Raphael Lemkin in general because uh, he's one of my favorite uh, researchers. But there's also uh, he made a very good um, argument in my opinion that colonialism in general is a form of genocide. Uh, he used the term colonial genocide as in just being settler colonialism in general. Then um, there's a We're lot of part about. parcel of the. That's a necessary part of the whole thing, I would imagine. Yes. Yeah. Um, and he used uh, the native genocides in North and South America as the basis for his study in genocide. A lot of people believe it was the Armenian genocide. It's incorrect. Uh, uh, Americans like to use that as like, oh, yeah, he learned about genocide in the Ottoman Empire. So we didn't have to reflect upon what, what we did here in America. Uh, Lemkin would strongly disagree. but. Uh, Lemkin didn't write a whole lot on this one because it was, well, it happened in Africa. Raphael Lemkin's Polish. Uh, do with that what you will. Uh, but also because there's not a lot of good research on it until very recently. Um, and, you know, this story of genocide, like most of them, if not all of them, begins with good old colonialism in the late 1800s. But unlike the usual suspects of it being Britain, France, or the United States, this falls squarely on the shoulders of the German Empire. In Spain, if you're listening, we know about you too, all right? Uh, and, you know, Belgium. All of you, really. You're all bad. Uh, but the Germans were very late to the colonialism game. Now, there's a very good reason for that, as they were only well, recently just... unified in 1871. Thanks for nothing, Bismarck. <laughs> yeah. You fucking dick. <laughs> it wasn't from a lack of wanting to do genocide and colonialism. It was the fact that Bismarck uh, had to, you know, real politique together the German Empire uh, and give it to a, a, a family of very stupid people to run into the ground. They sure made up for it, though. Yeah. Don't you worry, boys and girls. Way to go, Otto. Um, now... This was, uh, you know, unified by a group of world-renowned assholes, mostly, you know, Bismarck. Uh, but most of the profitable and prestigious tracts of land, uh, which were the point of colonialism for the most part, had already been snatched up by their neighbors, right? Um, after all, how can you call yourself an empire if all you control is fucking Germany? Am I right? Um, now, it was common in Germany and most of Western European courts at the time to think of the acquisition of colonies as the true measure of nationhood. Uh, this, uh, you know, uh, Kaiser Wilhelm would eventually call it their place in the sun, um, things like that. But one person that actually kind of disagreed was shockingly Otto von Bismarck. Um, now, I do need to point out there was no ethical or moral reasons for this, it was purely financial. Um, he believed that <laughs> controlling vast quantities of land. They would, would then be forced to pour their you know imperial coffers into as well as defend right it, it would be a liability sure. um, especially you know it would be all of the good stuff was taken for a lack of a better term it, you know he figured that all we're ever going to get is tracks of bullshit with nothing on them people already have the rubber and the oil what do we have right uh, endless slave labor that's right uh, hey. <laughs> Something Germany has never been shy about. Um, but that didn't stop people from trying. And uh, most of these that we're going to talk about were independent attempts separate from the German government. Like the, the German government was not rounding up settlers under the, you know, the eagle and sending them off to conquer lands. These were people attempting to become independently wealthy um, and strike out on their own. 
And I bring up one of these because it's very interesting as someone who used to live in Texas. Um, in, in 1844, a bunch of German aristocrats attempted to start a colony in independent Texas. Uh, now, this was after the revolution before they became part of the United States. Their idea was, so well, just some dudes. It, it was that weird gap period where Texas was technically independent. Um, right. Okay. And the Germans believed that and, and rightfully believed that independent Republic of Texas is quite weak. We might be able to flex on them, uh, make them subservient to the German Empire. Um, now, <laughs> this didn't work, uh, mostly because the place that they moved it, moved into in Texas is pretty miserable. Uh, it's in central Texas. Uh, <laughs> and uh, oh. for people who are, are unfamiliar with Texas, it's kind of like settling, I don't know, L.A. right now. Uh, there's no water. There's, <laughs> there's not a lot of places to grow shit. It's arid and horrible. It's very fucking hot. Oh, uh, it's like what uh, Black Hammer's trying to do. Yeah, it's yeah, just as stupid. Right. Yeah, um, most of them died, uh, and also their their plan w- to flex on Texas didn't work because Texas then joined the U.S. the next year. Though it did create a very small, very weird population of German speaking Texans that are still arrived, still around today. Yep. Uh, now they're mostly around the New Braunfels area. For people who are unaware, you just simply drive through Central Texas until things have weird German names. That's it. There's a bunch of checks around Waco, right? Because they make yeah. really good pastries. Yep. Uh, yes, they're fucking delicious. Um, you'll see signs for them everywhere. And there's other waves of immigrants to Texas after this, but the the gene seed of the German Texan is accidental German imperialism that failed. Interesting. Uh, and Texas kept German as an equal language uh, with equal status to Spanish until World War One, which is very weird. Uh, and the only reason why they did that is because obviously we had to go fight Germany. Uh, <laughs> now, one of the most important parts in creating an overseas empire is having a powerful, long-reaching, and strong navy that made transporting people and defending these things possible. You know, um, and it's something that the splintered German states didn't have uh, until you know unification and more importantly until the rise of kaiser wilhelm ii the fail son of the kaiserreich um wilhelm wanted an overseas empire constantly butting heads with bismarck over the idea and one of their many problems would eventually lead to bismarck losing control of the idiot fail son that was supposed to be pretty much a uh plaything for him to run the empire Whoops. It was one of the reasons that led to him being fired as chancellor. Not the only one, uh, but certainly one of them. Uh, you know, Bismarck was more worried about the coming two-front war in Europe that he had pretty much created, um, that he at least laid the, the seeds for. Spoiler alert, he fails. Um, now, old Nicky was obsessed with the idea that an overseas empire would make him look... Sorry, that was an accident. His, he was Willy. Mm-hmm. Russia was Nikki. Uh, yeah. Old Willy was obsessed with the idea that would make him look better and more powerful if, he, if they had this overseas and, empire. And Germany is trying to step out onto the world stage, right? Yeah. And like Japan thought much of the same thing at around the same time. Uh, you know, if, oh, good. A man consumed by ego destroys entire, uh, an entire group of people. Love it. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Love this game. Love this game you were playing together, Joe. Someone call it the great game. Dun, dun, dun. Um, Now, uh, Wilhelm was really bad at all of this, like most things that he did. Um, But to be fair, fair, he walked into the colony that we are talking about today. Um, Because Bismarck began to fuck with colonies, even though he said that he was against it. Uh, when his dad was on the throne, that you know, Biz- Bismarck supported this a bit, a bit, a, gr- a bit. Yeah, you know, it was like he was forced into it. Um, otherwise, he'd look bad. And now, to be fair, I am not defending out of Bismarck in any way. Uh, he's a bastard. But oh yeah, what happened was is like I said before, a lot of German independent citizens went out uh, with you know corporate backing, effectively, to go settle places and colonize them. Those places end up becoming very large, or at least decently large. Um, and a lot of them ended up becoming... You know, people knew that Germans settled them, even though they were not German colonies officially. People knew, like especially England and France, knew that 
they were an arm of the German Empire, a bit officially. So when they became threatened by imperial bullshit games, they became under the protection of the German Empire, effectively folding someone's corporate land grab into being an actual official part of the government. Sure. Um, So it's sort of like a Dutch East India Company sort of deal where they, they, they sort of have a blessing for the government, but isn't they're not the government. Pretty much, yeah. Without okay. going into right. the minutia of stupid sure. German yeah. law, yes. Um, okay. Now, these would go on to cement the colonial empire more than anything Willie would ever do. Oh, that is almost 100% Bismarck's doing. Um, this, of course, is all part of the so-called scramble for Africa, sparked by the Berlin Conference of 1884. Now, this was called by Bismarck himself in order to regulate and control European train and colonization over Africa. Now, of course, this goes without saying, no Africans were invited to this meeting. Ah, <laughs> oh, fuck them. <laughs> now, this <laughs> we'll meeting... We'll tell them later. We'll tell them later. Yeah. Uh, oh, they would find out. Um, and mm-hmm. it, it could rightfully be argued that they are, they are still finding out today. Um, now, most of this was because Belgian King Leopold II... Uh, was scheming along with very other power, uh, a few other powers, in order to go along the uh, around the traditional methods of trade uh, and take over large tracts of land for themselves. Uh, now, this would happen in the free state of Congo uh, for Leopold, which, unlike others, was his personal plaything. It was right. not part of Belgium for many years. It was uh, King Leopold's personal possession. Like you would own a house, uh, right? Now, this coincided with the knowledge that uh, Africa itself was expanding beyond coastal regions. For instance, they were sending uh, scouts and um, surveyors further inland. People like Henry Morton Stanley, uh, who were hired by Leopold to do uh, map work and stuff uh, in order to... Because up until this point, people had pretty much only colonized the coasts. Um, right. So he sent these people further inland, normally following rivers and and stuff like that, to make contacts with new people in order to take them over with hilariously stupid contracts. Um, like uh, people in the con- what we did today we know as the Congo would have like people like Henry Morton Stanley show up um, and get them to sign contracts to sign over their land, which the tribe itself didn't own because land ownership wasn't a thing concept right yeah um and, and it was a language that they did not understand uh and like the, the contract gave thousands of miles of land and all of the people within it to <laughs> king leopold and shit like that and this is something that america would do as well uh in yep. different ways uh, pretty much every imperial country would do something kind of similar to this um but what this conference really did do uh, was let all of these European powers who really hated one another to, to direct their hostility outwards against effectively the entire continent of Africa. The continent was divided into spheres of influence and soon powers were rushing to take shit over as fast as possible, forcing the indigenous populations into signing treaties like Leopold did. Um, so back in 1882, this is where Germans finally get their claws on Africa. A guy named Franz Adolf Luderlitz, again, never trusted Jesus. Adolf. <laughs> no. Wanted to establish a foothold in Africa in order to make himself old-timey rich. He failed a few times in a few other places before finally doing the same thing um, in what is known as Southwest Africa, which or was generally known as German Southwest Africa, today in modern-day Namibia. Sure. Uh, previous to this, Luderlitz attempted to do the same thing uh, in a colony that was controlled by Africa and was today Nigeria and failed miserably and got evicted. Um, <laughs> And him and another German named Heinrich Vogel saying uh, teamed up in uh, Namibia. Now, the area wasn't claimed by any imperial power quite yet. Uh, and there were a, a decently large number of German immigrants moving to America at the time. So th- their goal was to try to like get them to go there instead. In 1883, he bought the anchorage at Angra Pekina from a local chief who eventually went uh, by the German name Josef Frederick II. Um, it's the only name that I can find for him. Gotcha. Uh, it was for 100 pounds of gold and 200 rifles. Uh, he then purchased more land a couple of months later for more gold and more rifles. But, of course, there was fuckery in the deal. The contract a local chief signed specified that the area of lands... Uh, with as 20 geographical miles. 
Uh, this is a term that the chief had no concept of or had ever heard sure. of before because why the fuck would he? <laughs> also, German geographical mile equaled 7.4 kilometers, where the common mile was only 1.4. Now, the chief didn't know this, but Luderlitz did. Um, so I kind of appreciate your, they're finding new and new and innovative ways to fuck over indigenous people, like changing how big a mile is. Yeah, like, and you don't even have to do it, right? <laughs> right. Like, like you're just doing it, you're just doing it because you can. Like at some point, like obviously, a lot of the shit is just because you could. But like, if you're if you're gonna be as petty as to change how big a mile is, like you're just an asshole. <laughs> What's interesting and and probably the first time. Um, that I've been researching stuff like this, which admittedly isn't as long as, you know, actual historians, um, that this treaty was so fucked up and illegal that the German colonial department knew it was unactionable and illegal by any sane court. <laughs> but yeah, if, I feel like if a German imperial court is like, nah, I can't do that, like that. Imagine, imagine fucking over a minority so badly that uh, a German imperial court's like, whoa! It's it's like when Robert E. Lee tried to fuck over his slaves so bad that Confederate Virginia was like, no, you have to let him go. Um, Jesus Christ! But they let the contract slide because he swindled a black guy, and nobody gave a shit. Sure, yeah, of course, right. Now, before we get into the real bad things, longtime listeners of the show know that we we have a, a, a special I don't know, bit that we have whenever we talk about something terrible. Liam, this is your first time experiencing this, though I know you've listened to the show before. So for people may, who maybe are new, um, whenever we talk about anything terrible, at any point, Liam and Liam alone can call for an animal fact. Uh, I have a list of random animal facts that I will read to him. I also have a bonus uh, which is a one-time drop uh, that I will that is uh, Lyndon B. Johnson talking about his bunghole uh, that I will allow you to play. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. Has, has anyone ever gotten through these without an animal fact? No. Though, to be fair, Nick is very good at it because he's in the military and he's used to being psychically damaged continuously throughout every day of his life. All right. You know, you, you ever watch Hot Ones? Yes. All right, so Joel Embiid, who uh, center for the 76ers, made it a point to not drink any milk or water as he got through it. And at the end, as he's clearly like in agony, he's like, well, did anyone else get through it without uh, drinking milk or water? And like one other person had done it, so now I've got to beat Nick. Okay. Um, All right, let's do this. Let's do a genocide. I, I will say that this first episode, you might not use any. It's the second okay. episode that I'll get you. Oh, uh, great. It's like uh, going back to Hot Ones, Da Bomb, um, which fucks everybody up. So, yeah, uh, it turned out, like I said, the court knew it was illegal, but they also did not care. And Luderlitz, uh, Luderlitz uh, uh, did what What else but name his new colony Luderlitz Land. Come on, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere Donald Trump is giving him a knowing nod. Uh, like if this guy could build a skyscraper, <laughs> if this guy could build a skyscraper, his name would be on it in gold letters for sure. Oh, there's a Luderlitz Bay too. Oh yeah, yeah, Luderlitz Bay. Come on, you, you fucking prick. So then, a few years later, Bismarck used the Conference of Berlin to solidify German claims over the area, officially claiming it as a protectorate that same year. Though. He went out of his way to not call it a colony in order to not piss off the British who had settled down uh, in other colonies just across the border. As soon as the German flag went up over the colony, it became a beacon for thousands of colonists, missionaries, and traders. Now, missionaries, I'm not going to go into a whole lot about their spread um, through uh, Namibia, but they're heavy influence as they are in most uh, versions of settler colonialism virtually all of the education systems available for Germans and Africans in Namibia are church-based so they can work on religious and cultural assimilation. Um, this happened in uh, Vietnam with the French and they used it as a mechanism to deploy soldiers there and eventually, you know, turn into a colony. We did it yep. in the United States, Canada, still finding out about that every other week. It seems um, yeah, you don't get to complain about your churches being burned right now. No, I do. Like, I, I get it's kind of kind of a dick move, but like, yeah, let them have this one. Yeah, I don't, I don't give one fuck. 
Uh, I, they, I, they could have this one. That's I how I feel about it. I don't think I can legally say how I feel about that um, on this podcast. But uh, yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. Um, my my thoughts and um, as Alice would say, I hope they have a nice time. That's right. Um, I hope at one point we can stop finding uh, mass hidden graves under churches in Canada. Until that point, of children. I will of not children. care. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, this became a beacon for everyone. Uh, Bismarck hated the idea of public funds being used to fund and develop the colony, leading to what else? It's total and complete privatization. Uh, so he accidentally didn't Ayn Rand. <laughs> Who is John Galt? Uh, it turns out uh, he runs a concentration camp in Namibia. Oh, that's not surprising. And to be fair, both him and Ayn Rand would probably be fine with that. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. And don't forget they'd collect Social Security while they did it. That's that's fucking right. Um, now, the reason why he did this, like I said, was not because he disapproved of colonies. He didn't want them to become a financial burden on the empire, which meant at no point would the German government like dip in and be like, oh, we have to pay for this, that, or the other thing. Like, no, you want to succeed. You have to make money in your colony. Um, and then pay us taxes with it, because fuck you. Sure. Now, uh, the German Colonial Society for Southwest Africa was formed by bankers, industrialists, and politicians, and granted a full monopoly right over mi- uh, minerals within the colony. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, and a lot of members of the German government did their awful shit through this vector. Like... The, the German government can't officially do this, but the colonial society can. Right. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah, sure. Even yeah. though they're like a prince or something. <laughs> now, the only bright spot of this entire episode, I get to point out, uh, just as the colony became filthy, fucking rich, Lutherlitz mysteriously died on a boat trip and nobody ever found his corpse. Um, okay. Well, that's one good thing, I suppose. Yeah. The first commissioner for West Africa, Gustav Nachtigal, uh, died the same way, uh, which means my opinion, <laughs> which means my opinion on boats is going way up. Um, Maybe I, the boats did it, man. <laughs> team random German drowning from boats. Um, after Gustav died after only a year in office, he was replaced by brace yourself. Heinrich Ernst Goring. Yes, he was that Goring's dad. Oh, no. <laughs> no. Great, great. Start, start strong. All right. Fuck, man. Fucking fantastic, bud. These, uh, these are going to be the, the first footprints of the next one, if you know what I mean. Um, yeah, there's, all, there's an awful he, lot of these connections that pop up. I studied at my dad's knee to learn how to kill 12 million people. Now, if it makes you feel any better, Heinrich Ernst Goering uh, was very bad at his job. Um, it, like comically, we'll, but we'll get there. Up until this point, Germans in Namibia were dicks, but they weren't like outstanding dicks they would become. Well, obviously, they'd lied and cheated their way into owning this colony. There was free trade with them and by uh, with native people like the Herero and Namaqua tribes in the area. They weren't exactly living in harmony, but they were giving each other space. There wasn't a large enough German population yet to displace them. So the Herero and Nama had to give up a few things, but there wasn't, I don't know, death squads after them. We're talking a low bar here. Um, they weren't in, they, they weren't enslaved. They weren't being mass murdered. Uh, if they stayed away from Germans for the most part, it was live and let live. Um, which is as best case as this situation is going to get. Um, The Germans mostly lived on the coasts and the natives stayed further inland because, and and this is a a huge part of Herero and Nama culture is uh, cattle farming. Uh, So like you had to bring the the cattle further inland uh, in order for them to have, you know, grazing lands. Um, The Germans were more than welcome to let them do the hard work of actual, actually farming at the time. And then just buy their cattle or steal them, whichever. So all of that would unfortunately um, change under Goring. Remember to a crashing halt because he's a (laughs) proto-Nazi. Remember, the colony wasn't going to get any German state money. uh, And they had to earn their own way. And it was up to the commissioner to drive investment into the colony any way he could. So pull ourselves up by our genocide bootstraps. 
Uh, yeah, that, that's going to make the name of the book that I'm going to cite here uh, apt. Uh, so Goring did what anybody would do in his shoes. Fake a gold rush. What? <laughs> All right, now I'm, I'm in. I'm in so far. I'm in so far. According to the book, The Kaiser's Holocaust, uh, Goring ordered someone to fire gold pieces at a rock face, pulverizing them into gold dust in chunks, and then announced they had found gold in the colony. This eventually attracted thousands of new colonists to flood there along with their money and tons of new investments. Yeah. Uh, that's fucking that. Hey man. Yeah, if it was anybody I, I other than hustle, Her- right? If it was yeah. anyone other than Herman Goring's dad, I'd be like, you know what? Props. But- <laughs> yeah. But no, he's a proto Nazi. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, you can't hand it to the Herman Goring. Um, it's not good. You shouldn't do that. Um, now, this rush of new people and money meant that the Germans would need to take and secure more lands for new settlers. As you can imagine, and this led them into more and more conflict with the native population of Namibia. Sure. And the Germans would have to figure out a way to, quote, pacify them. Ugh. And they would do so with what were effectively protection rackets. Well, the Germans referred to the native peoples of various... They used a lot of different words. The most common one you hear is Hottentots or Hottenhots or whatever. Now, it's normally a term used for nomads, which is not accurate. Um, now, some of the, the Nama and Herero tribes were nomads, while others were not. Um, sure. It seems that they use the term nomad to try to say, well, like, well, they didn't have any claim to the land anyway. They moved around so often. Right. And because they're presumably subsistence farmers, some of them at least do do that. Yes. Um, but like also land ownership is not a concept to these people because why would it be? Right. Um, and there's various different tribes and different captains, which is what they called their chiefs, leading to different bands of people, all with different politics, alliances, and intertribal conflict. Uh, a lot of German writing, especially of the day, pretty much lumps the Herero and Nama into two camps, which is absolutely <laughs> not true. Uh, but they would, the Germans here, uh, doing their protection rackets would play kingmaker, picking and choosing who they think would best serve their purposes as colonial subjects, tilting the table in favor of the person who had promised to join the colonial side of things. But sometimes it didn't always work, and these intertribal conflicts would erupt into all-out war between clans and tribes. So that's when the Germans would simply get involved in these conflicts. They would play competing uh, captains against one another, create conflicts where there was originally none at all, and then wait for what happened next. In many cases, a captain who thought that they might lose these smaller civil wars would reach out to the Germans and ask for help, normally with guns and stuff like that. Uh, at this point, most of the tribes are still fighting with hand weapons. Not, the guns are not super common. Um, now, the Germans would be willing to help this captain with guns and supplies and whatever they need as long as they signed a protection agreement. Oh, no. Meaning that while their tribe would have freedom to rule within a certain part of this land, the land itself fell under the rule of the German colonial government. Once these were signed, the Germans would let the locals fight it out, destroying each other, then sometimes backing one side against the other if they thought one side was winning a bit too easily. And then when it was over, they would simply go in and pick apart the winner, knowing they'd be too weak or bound by a treaty to resist them. Sometimes weaker tribal leaders would reach out to the Germans to sign these agreements to protect their cattle herds, only for the Germans to then seize the cattle in payment for the agreement that the leader signed but did not understand. Dicks. Yeah. The Germans were very, very open about all of this, of course, at least to one another, obviously. Well, many of the tribal leaders simply didn't see any other way of surviving. The Germans could also levy these tribal people into their own colonial army units, using them rather than Germans for dangerous situations, because the Germans don't even have an army in Namibia yet. They're just leveraging people against one another. They're just dudes, right. Yeah, there's like local um, protection groups, which is just like Germans with guns. Sure. But uh, the the Schoss troop uh, or the security troops weren't there yet. Jesus Christ, everything sounds so fucking nefarious in Germany. It always does, yeah. Slowly but surely, more and more of Namibia was chipped away like this, going from a land set aside for the natives to part of the colonial enterprise. 
More and more German settlers arrived in the colony, increasing the pressure between colonial administration and the natives, who saw the land that they were promised in these protection agreements slowly but surely being stripped away, either under threat of direct violence or the threat of withdrawing protection, leaving them open to violence from other tribes, which the Germans would, of course, encourage when people didn't listen. By this point, most tribal leaders had signed one protection treaty or another with the Germans, working with them in the hope they'd eventually be left alone, with the exception of one. And he would pretty much dedicate the rest of his life to fucking with the Germans as much as he could. And that man's name was Heinrich Whitboy, or Hendrik Whitboy. I love him. Now, Henrik Whitboy, uh, the Whitboy being a sub-tribe of the Namas, um, was a member of the Nama tribe, and his grandfather and father were both captains within the same group of Namas. Okay. And they were the first to move uh, into what would become Namibia from what was considered South Africa. Like most high-ranking tribal children, he was educated in Lutheran schools by German missionaries. He spoke German, and by all accounts of the schools and his fellow tribal members, and the Germans himself, he was a clever motherfucker. Eventually, like his dad and granddad, he would uh, take over as captain as his tribe. But his faction of the tribe did not quite take this lying down, uh, as Henrik's own father complained that his son was headstrong. This is because when Henrik was younger, during intertribal war with the Herreros, he was nearly killed. And while he was recovering, he had a vision that he was sent by God to lead his people north further into Namibia. Now, everyone knew this would bring them into further conflict with other tribes and even other settlers. This led to several people wanting to be captain, and then something that would, we would consider a mini-civil war over the title. Henrik knew uh, what was probably going to come next, and that was the Germans getting involved, like they had with his, with his neighbors. Uh, and like I said, he was a smart dude. He knew what the Germans were up to. Right. But Henrik wasn't going to let that happen. He immediately wrote to the Germans, kind of negging them into staying out of the war. He wrote, quote, I appeal to you. Be so good as to distance yourself from the chiefs who would engage in treachery against me. I consider it ill-judged of your excellency to cooperate with those who cannot make peace and therefore envious of me. Stay neutral so Captain Jan Afrikaner and I can fight it out within ourselves, him being a distant relative uh, and also claiming to be captain. Sure. Somehow this worked. Um, now, remember, he didn't make any agreements to working with the Germans, but he was so well-spoken and spoke such good German, the Germans assumed that he would eventually fall under their wing as well. Uh, and Henrik eventually outmaneuvered... Surprise, motherfucker! <laughs> That's right. Uh, and Henrik eventually outmaneuvered all of his political opponents, centralizing tribal power onto himself. Now, um, unified under Henrik and marching north uh, brought him a direct confrontation with Chief Mahahero, a Herero faction, with some amount of strength who had just signed a protection treaty with the Germans. Now, most of these tribes assumed they would be untouchable because they were saddled up with the Germans. And everyone assumed that the Germans, like all Europeans, had massive military power they can bring down whenever they wanted. Uh, And the Germans, likewise, assumed that they locked all of these tribes into a weird network of treaties that would ensure that they'd only fight one another when they wanted to, but really only when the Germans needed useful uh, fighting to happen to replace someone they didn't like. They didn't actually think that, like, someone that signed a protection treaty would actually get fucked with, right? Right. But Henrik didn't give one single solitary fuck about the German administration and attack them all. He simply didn't acknowledge German authority in any way. He marched against the Herero through the region of Damaraland and picked fights against other tribes with the same protection treaties. Now, he effectively called the Germans bluff, and this led to massive instability within the colony. You see, the Germans' idea of protection was mostly just the agreement. They didn't have colonial soldiers to actually protect everyone they, they said they would protect. And even if they wanted to, they didn't really care. They assumed right. that the, the agreements would be enough to scare anyone away. Now, they didn't... Ca- However... <laughs> <laughs> now, like, as you can imagine, the Germans didn't care about any of these people. But the thing that this, that this happened, like the, the, the drawback of this happening, was it weakened the imperial mandate and the authority that they used to rule over everybody. Like, oh, wait, no. the Germans aren't actually doing anything. Maybe they can't do anything, you know? Right. 
Above all, instability threatened German economic interests. If colonial administrators could not guarantee stakeholders a return of their investments, commercial and industrial firms had little incentives to invest in the protectorate. Moreover, prolonged conflict discouraged potential German uh, settlers from making the long voyage to the colony. So, Henrik was fucking with the bottom line. And as we've learned on this show, you, you can't don't do that. fuck with the money. Now, actually, this is one of the few guys yeah, who kind of gets away with it for quite a while. Um, in June 1886, Reichskommissar Goring wrote to Henrik, encouraging to end his, quote, hostile actions in the colony. Act reasonably, he implored. Realize the best course is to return home and live in peace with your old father and your tribe. The German government dick. <laughs> The German government cannot permit chieftains who have placed themselves under German protection to support your enterprise of plunging the protected chieftain into war. I trust you will attend my words. Uh, Hi- Henrik shrugged, crumpled up the, uh, the letter, threw it in the trash, and then kept going to war. <laughs> Uh, Henrik, there's a lot, we're, we're going to talk about a lot of this when he talks to the German uh, administration. Goring is pretty much the only one he just flat out ignores. I think because everyone knew he was kind of an idiot. Good, good, good. Fuck him and his idiot kid. <laughs> Fuck his kid in particular. Oh, yeah. Uh, later that same year, he received a letter from a Louis Niels, a deputy officer in the service of Goring. Uh, Nils invited Whitboy to participate in a meeting between the various warring communities and Welvis Bay, which is a nearby city, where imperial authorities hoped to facilitate a peace treaty. In his response, Henrik chose to instead flex. He said, quote, I understand you want to negotiate peace. You, you who call yourself a deputy, how shall I respond? Are you someone else's representative? Am I, and am I a free, autonomous man who only answers to God? I have nothing further to say to you. A deputy is less powerful, so I've decided not to comply with your request. Damn! <laughs> oh, that's hero shit. <laughs> Henrik knew the same thing the Germans did. They had no meaningful way to enforce the rule in the region other than vague threats of possible force being brought by the German imperial military, which, remember, the Germans did not want to do. Like, that was their whole thing is like, we don't actually want to protect you or give you money. We just want you to give us money in taxes. And not to mention that military was thousands of miles away. And there was no means or colonial army for the Germans to strike out against them in any particular area. At one point, Goring threatened all out war and Henrik didn't care enough to respond. <laughs> I fucking love, love this it. guy. That's fucking tight. <laughs> Henrik also understood the imperial game going on, so he decided to reach out to German opponents to make them look bad. In addition, he uh, reached out to other European powers and tried to emphasize the inherent contradictions underlying German imperial directives. Henrik's prior relationship with missionaries and European traders helped him gain access to foreign embassies and international media outlets. In a letter to the British magistrate in Walvis Bay in August 1892, uh, he accused the German government of the very crime that the protection treaty supposedly promised to avert. Quote, what have I ever heard and seen since the arrival of Germans? It seems to me that the German himself is a powerful man who wants to invade our country. He rules autocratically, enforcing his own laws. Right and truth do not interest him. In an effort to broaden his appeal even further, Henrik underscored his knowledge of the Bible and regularly cited Christian teachings while engaging German leaders and European diplomats. After Maha Arrow had negotiated a new treaty with the colonial administration in 1890, for example, Henrik compared the situation to Christ after Herod and Pontius Pilate had forged an alliance to, quote, get the Lord Jesus out of the way. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> the guy just doing like an international uh, diplomatic trip, dunking on people and considering himself Jesus. Good for him, man. Uh, yeah. When Henrik found that European newspapers would publish his letters, he made sure to always look like what he was, a resistance fighter, a free and independent person, but also made sure to never directly threaten the Germans. So whenever the Germans did something, they would always look like the aggressor. In doing so, even in German newspapers, he looked like the superior of his opponents, rather than the subhuman the German colonial administration attempted to frame him as. And I don't use that term lightly. This is where Ubermensch starts. And Untermensch. Thanks for nothing, Gehring's dad. <laughs> yeah, fuck. In August 
1894, the popular Berlin newspaper, Berliner, some other German words I cannot pronounce, uh, wrote that Henrik was, quote, a character who makes history, much like Napoleon Bonaparte, leading him to be nicknamed in Germany, the Black Napoleon, a name I'm sure he can fight over with Toussaint Louverture in Haiti. (laughs) There can only be one. There can only be one. Uh, dig up Napoleon's grave as well. Uh, throw him into the mix. Uh, the German population, unlike many others, were actually pretty torn about the idea of an overseas empire. Uh, many people uh, did not like the idea. And uh, Henrik's speeches and the constant owning of the colonial authorities and the battlefield of ideas or whatever in the newspapers only strengthened the cause on those people. But it did the same thing for those who thirsted for what the Kaiser called their place in the sun. It was decided that quitting while they were ahead would just be bad for business, and the the colony would have to be secured, and the government didn't care how bad they looked doing it. So the Kaiser hired Kurt von Francois, a former mercenary under the employ of King Leopold II and captain of the in the German Imperial Army. Two things that nobody likes to hear. Especially not back to back. No, no. Kurt's job would to be to sail to the colony and set up the Schutztroop, or the Imperial Security Troops. Now, if you're wondering what kind of person Kurt was, you probably won't be surprised when I tell you. He was a fanatical racist, even for the day. Oh, no. Well, so of course he was. Francois looked at Henrik as a mere, quote, tribesman who could be defeated with relative ease. <sighs> quote, the Europeans have failed to give the black man the, the right kind of treatment he wrote upon his arrival. They made too many concessions, granting all of his wishes without bearing in mind this is only interpreted as a sign of weakness. Nothing but relentless severity will lead to success. Also, he did not use the term black man. I'll let you fill in the blank. Of course he did. God damn it. Francois and Henrik actually met, um, which is kind of weird. They met to hash out their ongoing problems, which in this case meant, once again, attempting to bend Henrik to his will, which he refused to do. And I need to point out here that some members of the German public may have seen Africans as human beings. Um, Francois did not. Oh, oh, yeah. He he believed them and used the term Untermensch very frequently, uh, which for people unaware means subhuman. Um, And if that sounds familiar to you, it should. The Nazis were fans. Nazis were huge fans. And if Francois was around, he would have been a huge fucking Nazi. Oh, yeah. Now, these meetings went predictably bad uh, because it turns out Henrik was much better spoken than Francois. And Francois fucking hated Henrik because he was black. <laughs> uh, did Henrik punch Francois at the face at any point? Because I want that. No, I wish he would have just smuggled in a pistol and put one between his eyes. Uh, yeah. Now, Henrik framed the conflict of one's national liberation of the people. He said, quote, every ruler is chief over his people and the country. When one stands under the protection of another, he is subordinate and no longer independent or master of his people or country. We are different nations, live by different laws and customs, and come from different countries. Each chief lives with his people according to his own laws and conditions which they find themselves. Now, after this conversation, Francois had one of those moments that you see in movies where the bad guy kind of suddenly realizes that he might actually be the bad guy. And that is when Francois admitted to Henrik that he understood because, quote, I could not bear to be bossed around either. (laughs) But, yeah, then that didn't matter. Um, And and from all like firsthand accounts of the meetings, uh, Henrik was very calm and collected while Francois got more and more angry. Because remember, this guy... Worked for King Leopold II in the free in the Congo Free State. You know what he does to like black people he doesn't like. Yes, uh, and this one is literally making him look like a mouth breathing like idiot. idiot. Yeah, which he was. Yes, which we he should be clear was. on that. Yes. Yeah, we are not here to stand, uh, Francois. <laughs> But none of that mattered, unfortunately. Francois's only goal was to pacify the Nama people, not to cut deals with them. This meeting told him that the only way the Whitboy Nama tribe would stop fighting the Germans would be through military conquests, or what the German colonial government began to call, and I am 100% serious here, the answer to the native question. Come on, dude. (laughs) I told you you'd keep seeing it. Uh, just let that one uh, 
love, love, love to do episodes on Holocaust One. Uh, <sighs> Not even Holocaust One, but uh, it's it's a pre. I I feel comfortable calling this a prequel for reasons yeah. that you will see more in an episode two. Um, Thanks, Joe. <laughs> Yep. Uh, so Francois ordered his security force of around 200 to do some light genocide in what would not be the first or only extermination order given by the German military in this area and something that had become frighteningly common throughout their immediate history. Francois gave the order to his soldiers, quote, the object of this mission is to destroy the tribe of the Witboy. And that is where we will pick up next week. I still got half an hour. You know, it's uh, it's uh, it, researching this has been interesting uh, in that in the field of of genocide studies and um, just general history, right? Uh, most people consider uh, the Armenian genocide to be the prequel to the Holocaust, right? Um, you have Germans involved in it; uh, they're military ad, uh, advisors to the Ottoman military. They help. They wit- well, actually one of the best firsthand accounts comes from a German army medic that was there and was you know disgusted by what he saw. Um, but I don't think that's accurate anymore. Mm. Uh, I think it was Namibia uh, for reasons that I don't want to spoil, but become incredibly apparent in part two. Um, obviously, <laughs> having a goring involved doesn't help things, um, but. Uh, how you feeling, man? This is this is your first heavy heavy episode that oh, we've so ever done. So far, fine. Uh, not feeling great about tomorrow when we're recording this. <sighs> yeah, <laughs> I, I will say that um, it's not as bad as the Khmer Rouge. I feel comfortable saying that, but then again, I don't know. I don't know. I'll let you be the judge of that. So, uh, Liam, plug your other show. Uh, well, there's your problem. It's a show about uh, engineering disasters. Go listen to it. And not genocides most of the time. Um, no, sometimes <laughs> genocide adjacent. Yeah. But, uh, to be fair, we're also not mostly about genocide. I, I try to hit like one good one a year to keep everybody on their toes. Thank you, Joe. Yeah. Um, keep them on their Joes, if you will. <laughs> You're uh, you're welcome for my service, and uh, everybody. Thank you for supporting the show. Obviously, thank you for uh, sitting through this. I know this is probably not the normal episode you tune in for, but uh, thank you for supporting the show. If you donate at the three dollar level or above, you get access to my premium, if that's the word I'm using for it, podcast uh, called "The History of Armenia," where I chart the history of Armenia from conception to the modern day. Uh, listen to it, and uh, until next time don't do colonialism if your name if your last name is Garing, put a redacted in your mouth and redact it <laughs> god damn it just just end it just end it nothing